0: Petty with another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. And today I'm thrilled to have with me David Fletcher, who has been working for over two decades in healthcare. And most recently was at the Geisinger Health System, uh, refining and expanding their telehealth system um, throughout the, their central Pennsylvania region. Um, and previously he was at the Arkansas University of Arkansas uh, for Medical Sciences, also expanding and um, projecting out their reach for delivering healthcare services to the populations most at need. David, thank you, for, and welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, know, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Can you tell the audience who isn't familiar with your work and your time in the industry what you've been up to for the last two decades and, and what's brought you to where you are today?
1: Sure, yeah. So, you know, really a lot of focus on, you know, kind of transforming care um, and and a, one of the major tools I've been really working in is kind of digital health in general and, and a lot within the telehealth space as well. Um, and so, you know, in Arkansas, we really, at the time we, we had one academic medical center. It was located in Little Rock, Arkansas, right in the center of the state. We had 75 counties throughout the whole state. And so, but so many of the sub specialists were located only in Little Rock. So for instance, program we, we started with was really a, a maternal fetal medicine special, a specialty program for telemedicine because all four MFMs in the entire state at the time were located in Little Rock. And so all the other areas of the state um, didn't really have access to that subspecialty care unless they had the means to get, you know, maybe two, three hours away into Little Rock. Um, and so, you know, that really, you uh, you know, really was a light bulb moment for me of of really understanding how, you know, gosh, that some of this technology that's coming out can really help, uh, you know, mitigate some of these these traditional issues we've had with disparities in care based on whether you just happen to live in a big urban area with lots of very well-educated subspecialists or whether you only had access to primary care or in some cases only uh you know a uh, uh, family practice you know uh, uh physician or or uh, p a or something and um so um really have been working a lot in that space and then uh was recruited to come up to geisinger uh and lead the telehealth program so at geisinger uh the great thing that about that i found about that was it was a it geisinger is a, a fully integrated health plan so they they've got health plan and and a hospital and uh, and so that opened up a a lot of possibilities for what we could do with telemedicine. So, um, in Arkansas, we were a little bit hamstrung in that it was largely fee for service. And so a lot of things that we could do like to decrease, um, unnecessary transportation, things like that with telemedicine, uh, just didn't make sense in a, in a fee for service world that, and they did make a lot of sense when, when we were both the payer and the provider, Um, and so you know, really did a lot of uh, work there, e- uh, headed up the EICU, the uh, in-hospital, in-clinic, in-home, virtual nursing, all that kind of um, those efforts um, at Geisinger. Um, and then most recently uh, I've been working in uh, consulting and uh, really passionate about trying to, um, you know, really uh, extend the things I've learned and mistakes I've made and, and uh, you know, uh, have those learnings spread out across the country or even across the world uh, to, to the greatest degree I can. And one of the things I'm working on now that I'm, I'm really excited about is I'm working with the West Health um, uh, nonprofit organization out of California who, who really advocates for the aged. And, uh, and it's an area of telemedicine that I think is, is really, unfortunately, often underutilized because um, people have some assumptions around uh, older, older patients and, and their use of telemedicine um and so working with them to really advocate and 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 talk about how telemedicine and, and digital tools can be designed with the aged in mind and they actually get enormous benefit out of it um, and in fact they have a, a pledge that i encourage folks if, if they agree with me to <laughs> go sign this pledge that that uh the center for uh, of excellence for telehealth and the Aged. Um, just google that and you'll find they have a pledge that basically just 32 organizations have already signed up and uh, to really show that they support making sure that we we keep the agent in mind as we build these kinds of uh, technical advancements.
0: No, that's fantastic. And I want to go back and, and, and um, step up, you know, double click on a nuance there that you brought up, which is in a fee for service system, sometimes the benefits of telehealth aren't fully captured, aren't fully realized even versus a kind of comprehensive closed system like the Geisinger. Um, and my question to you is: Can you explain that to our audience a little bit uh, in more detail? In the sense of what benefits do you see with telehealth? Period, and what isn't, or what is missed perhaps in a fee-for-service world um, that maybe isn't, you know, fall under a, a distinct CPT code or a distinct bundle mm-hmm. or what have you, and, and th- that you are able to see the benefits of from when you look at it holistically um, that we should be considering perhaps more broadly.
1: Sure. Yeah. So you know, I, an example of one a program we were really excited about in Arkansas that never went anywhere, and I, I knew a lot of other folks in other states that had kind of the same experience was, um, you know, we thought well, telemedicine would be this great way to avoid having an unnecessary transport from a skilled nursing facility. Um, so oftentimes uh, a, pay, uh, a resident at a skilled nursing facility, nursing home, will end up getting sent in an ambulance to an ER. Um, for a fairly minor type condition, just because the, the the nursing facility may not have the kind of medical expertise they need, um, or or at the very least they use a non emergency transportation, which you know sometimes might be not be necessary. So we thought telemedicine is this great solution. We can beam in a specialist, talk to the it's way better for the patient. They 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 get to stay in place. They don't have, get jarred and trying to go into transportation. The problem was that. Um, Medicaid traditionally pays for the skilled nursing facility stay. Medicare traditionally pays for the ambulance. And so even though both partially federal programs, Medicare entirely, Medicaid partially, um, they were different buckets of money. (laughs) And so we could go to Medicaid and say, well, we can save the transportation costs. And Medicaid would say, of course, they, they were in favor of it, but they were like, it doesn't come out of our budget. We can't fund it. Um, and, and so, just those kinds of weird kind of perverse incentives ended up being stumbling blocks, whereas for Geisinger, for instance, you know, we, uh, Geisinger was also the payer in many cases. They had a large Medicare Advantage program and things like that, um, and, and so it was, it was worth it to the, the health plan to cover all kinds of programs like that, uh, just to ensure that we were decreasing the total cost of care, we weren't so concerned about which bucket it was coming out of.
0: No, that completely makes sense. In terms of just understanding the differences in care and the nuances of care versus what people might think the aged need, what what do you think that the stereotypes are? And I, I know I'm, I'm thinking of some off the top of my head, of course, but I want to make sure that, that we capture all of them. So, what do you think the stereotypes are with with how the aged think about or relate to or use telehealth versus what have you found um, in your um, experience?
1: Absolutely, I, I think um, so. You know, one of the a phrase that i often uh use is um like this old kind of quip that uh you know it's it's not the things that you don't know that get you in trouble it's the things you know for certain that just ain't so and i think one of those things that falls into that bucket is that telemedicine is great for millennials gen y people born with an iphone in their hand of course they're going to love telemedicine that that's the that's the right audience for telemedicine older folks they're not going to like it. It's not what they're used to, um, and and there's just a certain intuitive sense to that that a lot of people kind of latch onto that and assume that that's the case. Um, and in fact, we have not found that to be the case. We've done a lot of surveys, satisfaction surveys about telehealth, and we do it across a lot of ages. And and it's particularly important for for Geisinger because central Pennsylvania skews older than the general population of the country. Um, and when
0: you say, and we, when you say older, what do you mean?
1: Um, So the 65 to, you know, uh, 85 is, is much larger than just across the U.S. population. Um, And so when we, uh, when we, when we surveyed them, uh, we found that their satisfaction rates with telemedicine were basically identical to the general population, the zero to 65. Um, And, um, and one thing that was interesting was at Geisinger, we found that the, the 65 to 85 population had a higher satisfaction score than other 65 to 85 across the country. Not dramatically so, but, but noticeably. And I think the reason for that was because we, we had to design our telemedicine program with the aged in mind because of our population. And so we didn't have an elaborate kind of portal or sign up process. We, we integrated everything with the, the electronic health record and so we were able to just send a link. We would send it a text to their phone or an email, whichever they preferred. and the patient would just send a link because it was all you know connected and integrated in the background. And so we knew who they were. and so they could just click a link and get into a secure connection. Um, and, and so they didn't have to do a lot of signing up. And so we, I always laughed for the first six months after COVID when you know Telemedicine really exploded. Uh, almost all of my survey responses started with the words "I actually," because everyone was so surprised at how incredibly easy it was to do, and and I think that's why uh, really everybody of all ages. But it, it, it I think you know, particularly if, if if it is someone who's who's older and maybe you know has not necessarily been using a a smartphone their entire lives. Um, so so I very very strongly uh, um, always push back on on folks who assume that. Uh, you know, certain demographics, whether aged or, or other racial or, or socioeconomic categories, you know, are or are not a, te- a good candidate for telemedicine. You can't tell from any of those things and uh, based on any of the survey data that I've seen.
0: So it sounds like the takeaway there is if you make it simple enough and easy enough and straightforward enough, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them to use or for anyone to use they're going to use yeah. it which is kind of a takeaway for any age group right so absolutely
1: that's awesome. exactly that's my argument is I think a 30 year old even if they had the technical te- technological savvy to get through it they'd rather have the easy solution I know I would
0: yeah I was like, I, I can't even imagine like I can't even remember the number of logins that I have and the passwords and all of that whereas if I just had a link that said hey at two o'clock click this link I would be happy to do that
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So you did a lot of work with Geisinger and building up telehealth as you did in Arkansas. Um, And specifically, there was some astronomical, I think it was uh, 200-fold growth in telehealth. Obviously, COVID happened and there was a lot of growth driven by that, which accelerated a lot of things. But you obviously took a lot of um, initiative in putting together ways to facilitate that growth. What would you highlight as like the top three things that you did uh, or that Geisinger did? more broadly to drive that astronomical level of growth? I mean, it's not that you guys were behind the ball in the first place, right? You were already kind of pushing the limit. So what else did you do to to incrementally um, and dramatically increase so quickly?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the things that I think really set the stage for us was we had had built uh, a single platform to handle all those modalities. So in the past, a lot of times you'd find uh, Geisinger itself and any other other health systems I knew of, uh, there'd be kind of one solution for in the home, and then they'd buy another solution for hospital-based stuff, and then they'd buy another solution for you know remote patient monitoring, and you had kind of this hodgepodge of systems. And um, so fortunately, prior to COVID, you know when I came in, I was I said we're going to have a single platform, we're going to have we're going to build a lot of integrations with our our EMR. Um, and so that our providers, regardless of what specialty, what modality they're working in, they're going to follow the same process. Now, I'd love to say I was clairvoyant and I saw how important that was going to be. Uh, I, I absolutely did not expect anything remotely like uh, COVID. Uh, but, but I will say, I mean, even before COVID, we'd grown from, before I came to Geisinger, they were doing about 100, 150 visits a month. Uh, across about 20 different specialties and we'd grown um to over 800 visits a month which at the time i thought was wow what a really nice <laughs> growth pattern uh, and then of course the very next month when covid happened my growth was completely washed out by you know because we went fifty thousand visits or something and um but i i think that that was key and especially because on the provider side it made it so easy for us to stand up across you move know, from 20 specialties to over 70 specialties um in a matter of a couple weeks. And and the only re- way we were able to do that was because it was the same process for everybody, every specialty. They didn't have to worry about, well, is this a hospital, is this a SNP? Is this a ambulance? You know, um it was it was the same platform. So so that was key. I think the the standardization and it also of course made it very much easier for the patients because we didn't have to worry about like, okay, log into this portal if it's if you're from your house. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to be using an entirely different process. So, so that was one key. Uh, I'd say another key was we did we took a lot of survey data and we learned a couple things. So um, you know, in addition to the you know the high satisfaction for other uh, you know age groups, um, one thing that we did find and, and there was an, an age difference in this response. Um, very high satisfaction for telemedicine. We asked them, okay, great. If we can get to a post-COVID world, what what are your intentions to continue using telemedicine? Now, we had over, you know, well over 80%, maybe I think over 90% satisfaction. I assumed that it would be somewhat similar. It was only 62% actually indicated that they intended to use telemedicine going forward which which puzzled me because i thought well you love it why wouldn't you want to keep doing it and uh and it, i mean i it was, it was i i should have known but uh uh we we asked then okay well you know what are the things you like about telemedicine it was the usual things you expect convenience i don't have to sit in a waiting room etc um and then we asked well what concerns if any do you have and one of the the, the the number one thing that everybody said, and it was particularly pronounced amongst the older patients, was, I don't know that this is a medically, you know, thorough exam. Is it? Is it as comprehensive as an in-person exam? And, you know, we were grappling with that question. But honestly, you know, mostly in with the audience of policymakers and healthcare leaders in mind and I think we kind of skipped over, our patients are asking the exact same completely appropriate question. Um, and, and so so we had to, we kind of had to pivot, you know, we were so focused on, hey, look how convenient and easy this is. We also had to add in additional information for our patients about when we offer it, and equally importantly, when we don't offer it. So, you know, we did a video with one of our pulmonologists, uh, who's a great champion for telemedicine, and he talked about, you know, some of the great instances, but he also talked about, look, there are times when I have an exam that I can't do via telemedicine. If that's the case, we don't even offer it to that patient. You know, we, we say, hey, we need you to come in. Um, and I think, you know, that really helped to alleviate some of the concerns. So I think, you know, really getting that feedback from the patients and, and adjusting the program based on that um, was another big key as well.
0: We have algorithms throughout our so we have our telemedicine platform and, and similar thing the, the biggest driver success is we're getting rid of point solutions and we're also seeing patients appropriately so you're not doing a double visit when you're like oh sorry i can not actually treat you you have to go back and see someone in person right so um i think that level of communication and explanation is definitely something that is easy to skip it's definitely easy to skip over and, and easy to miss but um once you did do that did you see a different like what happened afterwards like did people stick with telemedicine for something i understand like you know once the hospital's open once pcp's offices open maybe some of them go back naturally but Mm -hmm. did you stick with that 60 percent post covid or was it higher was it lower how did it end up working out
1: sure so i'd say we you know once the once the clinics reopened we we very quickly went down to about 12 to 15 percent of our all of our outpatient visits, uh, which is pretty much in line with a lot of other kind of leading health systems that I knew of. Um, and Now, but it varied widely by specialty. So, for instance, behavioral health, of course, kind of the the gold standard. You know, we 60 to 80 percent, I know over 80 percent actually of outpatient tele uh, behavioral health that we we completed over telemedicine. So, and and in fact, yes, we we found that as we kind of pivoted the messaging, that our our patients were very comfortable with it. Really. The main thing that was driving the adoption were, was the providers. Now, interestingly, um, often, you know, mostly appropriately so, you know, we would ask the providers which visits can they do clinically and which they can't do clinically. Um, I think there's still a lot of data to be looked at there as well. I think we need to help support our providers with, with some really good research in that field. But, um, but the other thing that we noticed was <clears throat> even within a single specialty, we have enormous variance. From provider to provider, and and they they were seeing the same types of patients, same conditions. So I think there is still a, definitely an element of of just provider preference, um, and I think that that as much as anything drives um, the a lot of the patient comfort with it as well.
0: No, that makes sense. And as you know, like you said, you ha- you had a huge proportional and disproportional impact on Asian populations in in Pennsylvania. Um, and as we all know, our population is getting older. It's going to be a situation that's probably replicated across the country in many areas if it isn't already. Um, how, what advice do you have for people facing the same conditions or soon facing the same conditions that you dealt with, which is an aging population, uh, multiple comorbidities, I'm sure multiple specialty needs. Um, are there certain specialty areas they should prepare for? Are there certain areas that can be done more in hello health to kind of ease the burden of care on people and to get people more compliant? Because I mean, I don't know about you, but with my grandparents, there's at least one or two visits a week, right? As they get older. So um, something like that, even if you're the most dedicated caretaker can can wear on people if it's always kind of back and forth and back and forth. So um, do you have any tips or thoughts on for growing an elderly population with all that burden of healthcare needs? How do we appropriately incorporate telehealth, and at the same time, make people feel comfortable they're getting the health care that they need on a broad scale, specialty or otherwise.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I advocate strongly in terms of just the regular visit, design design your visit so that everybody can use it. So, so you shouldn't have just a whole separate flow of, oh, well, this is how we do for uh, older patients and younger patients. It should be easy for everybody. But that being said, I think there is absolutely a need to be kind of think outside the box and be flexible. So um, like behavioral health, you know, part of the reason we have such a high percentage is, one, it's, you know, the the visit itself lends itself. You know, you don't really have to have hands-on, of course, um, in most cases. And in some cases, we actually find that our providers think they get a better view because they're seeing how the patient is actually living in their regular environment. Um, So it's kind of a win-win. The other big piece for, for Geisinger was central Pennsylvania is really hard to recruit certain specialties to. It's not a, there's not a big urban area here. And, um, and so we just flat out, couldn't recruit enough behavioral health subspecialists. Um, but with, you know, with telemedicine, we could, we could enter into contracts with other geographic areas. I mean, it's, there's a shortage across the country, but it, it does vary. And, and areas that had more available. We just had to get them licensed in Pennsylvania. We went through the credentialing process, and they were able to see our patients, um, and so we, we dramatically increased our access. Um, so, so I think that's part of it is is you can get access to a lot of subspecialties, subspecialists that you wouldn't necessarily in that area, which can really benefit the aged population. And then lastly, you know, I I really think that um, you know the one of the focuses that you know we really Try to you know hone in on for our older population um, is you know just again that, that real ease of use and and so like for an example is we have this program called Geisinger at Home, which um, uh, we actually won awards for it. I was very very proud of it. But it, again, it's kind of outside the box. So the the real quick version of it is we would actually send out a a nurse or a community health assistant into the patient's home. And, and they would do all kinds of things. They would, they would uh, coordinate social services and, and, you know, make sure that p- these patients were getting everything they needed. And it was really geared toward exactly what you're talking about, patients who have multiple comorbidities, very high risk for readmission, for ER utilization. Um, and, and so at and, and the very beginning of this program, we would actually then, if that, if that nurse saw something concerning the physician would actually drive all the way to the patient's home. Now you can imagine, that's a very resource intensive, difficult to scale type program. Um, and so when I got here, I, was, I you know, was excited about the program and I thought we can make this really much more efficient. <laughs> what if we send that nurse or that community health assistant out with a tablet and a MiFi? We don't even have to worry about if the patient has, has broadband. And then, you know, a, a steth- digital stethoscope, uh, an otoscope, a handheld camera. And so we we would do that, and they would beam in the physician. And we were able to scale that program up very rapidly. And, and again, that's a good example where the fully integrated health system really paid off, because the health plan, even as resource-intensive as, as that is, taking all the costs into account, the health plan saved over $2 million a year because we were able to make such a dramatic uh, improvement in hospital readmissions and ER utilization. Um, so I think, you know, those are the kinds of things that we'll have to keep reconsidering as as the population does get older and and really kind of design our programs with the patient needs in mind and really think downstream about, okay, yes, this may be a costly initial investment, but what are gonna be the benefits downstream if we, if we can really implement this and make it uh, you know, an efficient program.
0: So you've had to fight that fight already, right? And, and, and you've been in the midst of you know, budget talks and over the years, I'm sure during COVID was very different from post COVID, from pre COVID. But um, as we all know, hospital budgets are always lean and margins these days are thinner than ever. How do you have that conversation when, again, for many, they see it as a cost avoidance issue, not necessarily a broader benefit? right um and how do you frame it correctly so that when you are in those conversations internally at a health system at a hospital whoever's at the decision-making table that they understand the full value of what you're doing because at the, at the beginning it you know I'm, I'm assuming knowing how how this works that they see the cost they see the cost of scaling the program and they're like this benefit might or might not happen we might or might not have seen it in the pilot so how do you get them over that hump? absolutely
1: oh boy that's a great question and and uh Funny you asked that about a couple of years ago. Actually, the, we were a couple of years through COVID, and the CEO of the health system um, called a meeting and uh, asked me to attend and and asked me to kind of summarize what all we had stood up in telehealth. And I was enormously proud of, you know, like, oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you, you know, like <laughs> we're in skilled nursing, we're in ambulances, we're in prisons, we're in hospitals. And, um, and he said, wow, that's, that's really, you know, I I didn't even realize the full scope of all that. That's, that's amazing. So now that we're, we've opened our clinics and things again, how do we know what's the right amount? Because like, we stood all that, that up because we had to, we had no choice. We were closing clinics. Now is that, should we, should we be doing more in certain areas? Should we, should we pare back some now that we don't necessarily have to have it? Should you know what's what's the correct amount of telemedicine? And my honest answer at the time was, I don't know. <laughs> so um, uh, I, uh, I I realized like, oh wow, okay. I almost wish I hadn't uh, shut off my mouth about all the things we were doing. Um, but but it was great because then we we spent the next year really doing like a deep dive into okay, what's what exactly what you're talking about? What are, what's the value that this is bringing? um and and we we kind of went about it backwards before that we would always you know we'd have kind of these little niche programs and then we would we would predict and you know do the full analysis ahead of time and like okay should we do this or not and this in this case we'd done it all already and now we were going back and looking at the data and say well should we continue to do it um and it was a challenge because we had over 70 specialties and so you know i was trying to figure out a way is there a way that there's just like one big answer, you know, unified theory of telemedicine. <laughs> that this is why you should do it, and the degree to which you should do it. And I was not uh, able to come up with that answer. What I ended up having to do was break it out on use case and kind of broad use cases. And It wasn't my specialty because even that was going to be too granular. Like I couldn't come up, I couldn't do 70 different analyses and present that to the executive committee. Um, so what what I found was that it it they kind of did fall into different categories. So, for instance, some specialties previously, because they were just at least for our area, hard to come by subspecialties. We had them in Danville, which is where the Geisinger is headquartered. Um, and so previous to this, they would actually send physicians in a car to say Scranton, where another one of our where got another one of Geisinger's hospitals is um and so that's two hours in the car there and back for a very expensive um subspecialist that we have enormous wait times for um and so just a very inefficient use of that service and so so we're able to explain that look this makes sense because we're able to to just really kind of you know leverage this system that's being used in a lot of different ways and and so it makes sense to, if we can cut Four hours a week of this very expensive specialty, you know that that's that's benefit to the system. But in other cases, it was about improving access, like behavioral health. We can't get these providers here, but we sure can get them in California, and 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 then we they can beam in and they can cover our hours and, and things like that. Um, so we really did have to kind of go use case by use case um, and, and and really look at it. And then you know the, the other example I always give um, is is that even in Arkansas where it was fee for service, uh, we we worked with our legislature in Arkansas and actually passed a payment parity law, state law. Um, and and at the time I I was doing a lot of the business stuff for the group and uh, the telemedicine group and and everybody said oh this is going to make your life easy right and the the simple truth was it barely made a dent in any of my ROI calculations <laughs> the fee for service. Was so small comparatively, particularly like say for an MFM. An MFM is a pretty expensive subspecialty. Um, so a $90 consult fee didn't remotely cover the cost. What the thing that was driving it was the downstream. And so that's that's the other thing I always tell people is you know, like don't just focus on the fee for service or the, you know, oh, am I getting reimbursed for this one individual visit? So for, for in that case, it was, you know, we had a very expensive. The, the NICU was a big cost or big uh, profit center for the hospital, and so if we make sure we got the sickest of the sick at that hospital, then you know that that is what kept the the NICU going. And and everyone agree- the nice thing was everyone agreed. It wasn't like we were trying to take everybody's patients. Everybody knew like the, it was the only academic center in the state. Everybody agreed the sick babies should be there. Um, and so so it was really all about making sure that the, 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 sick, the sick moms who were going to have sick babies uh, were being cared for by MFMs and then ended up delivering at the most appropriate location of care. That was what really drove the value for the program.
0: No, that makes sense. It's highlighting those key use cases as the examples of this is why you do this. Kind of more broadly. No, that makes sense. So now that you've kind of established such a successful telehealth program and also explored it with different populations, um, what's next for you? What are you thinking about focusing on? Is it more telehealth? Is it more work on the elderly? Is it more a combination of the two, or something completely different?
1: Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm really excited about you know just again continuing to try to transform care and, and improve access for you know groups that, that sometimes haven't had access to as good a care as we could give them you know, as a country. We have a lot of resources at our disposal, and sometimes they just don't get spread efficiently. Um, and, and so um, I, I really think, you know of course, there's a lot of being spilled on AI and, and a lot of concerns with it, and, and, and very appropriately so. But I do think there are a lot of things involved in AI um, that can be married with a lot of digital health tools that can really improve care for folks. Um, so, like at Geisinger, you know, we we even had a, you know a fairly simple version of it, but it was you know a, a symptom checker and a chatbot that that we were able to use to to help guide patients through. You know, we have all these tools available through our our website and patient portals and things like that. They're just hard to navigate through if you're if you're not in healthcare every day. Um, and so the chatbot was really good at helping patients guide them to where they needed to be and then handing them off to, to you know, whatever uh, resource they needed, you know, a, a physician, a clinician of some kind. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room for that. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of room also just to uh, make make provider's lives easier. That's the other thing. People ask me all the time about, well, how did you stand this up so quickly? And I think they're looking for kind of a magic, you know, oh, you'd use this cool tool. And that was, and honestly, the, the biggest piece that I've always found is looking at what the provider is struggling with solving a problem for the provider because that drives so much of the kind of healthcare decision-making. And, uh, and so, you know, I think there's enormous potential. You know, I could envision a world where providers are talking to the patients either through a telemedicine, which is a great, or, or even in an exam room and, you know, kind of some of these ambient type tools that can listen in and, and with AI kind of actually build out a full note and understand this is the diagnosis that the provider's talking about. And, and then eventually, you know, again, way down the road, but that this, this just gets transmitted to the payers. And and the provider is not spending 30 minutes sitting there typing in all the things they just learned from talking with the patient. So I think tools like that, I think are, are, you know, there's so much ink about, oh, a robot doctor is going to replace all the doctors. I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. But I think some of that kind of back-end processing, I think is very ripe for making providers' lives easier, I hope.
0: No, that's awesome. And then I'm excited to see what you uh, end up working on or consulting on next. I know you've got a lot of great ideas for what you've seen already and what you see as a potential for the future. So I'm um, looking forward to connecting as, uh, as things go forward.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I, yeah, it's a, an exciting time. I really appreciate it.